The following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. Um, I, I think that the Lord has us learning something and we're going through a refining fire, so to speak, um, because he wants to do something special in and through his church. That's not just for us to have an exit strategy to heaven someday, but I really do think he wants us to make an earthly difference right now. I think that there's something that he's inviting our church to do in Baltimore, but many of you, your connections go way outside of Baltimore. A lot of you travel for your work. Many of you are here for specialized training, knowing that you're going to be serving in another country within the next few months or within the next few years. And my, 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 my passion and my excitement about all of that is that God is equipping us and maturing us now because he has something that he wants us to do until he comes back. And I want us to be confident in that. And so we're in the middle of a series that's going to take us, actually not the middle, we're at the beginning of a series, we're two weeks in, where we're leading all the way up through Easter. And we're really wrestling with the question, really, why did Jesus have to die? Um, Because I think for many of us that are Christians, we have an answer for that. Um, But based upon our joy tank, based upon the peace that's in our lives, based upon the fruitfulness of um, us even feeling confident to talk about Jesus to other people, how much do we really believe about Jesus? Like, we know that he died for our sins, for many of us, and we believe the truth of that. But when you look at the evaluation of ourselves, like what it takes to knock us off course, what it takes us to be overcome by fear and doubt, what it takes to discourage us or to fight against emotional and spiritual and mental conflict, are we really anchored firmly in Jesus? Um, I would say that's probably a healthy evaluation. And if you were here last week, one of the things that I talked about was is that in a room like this, there's easily a hundred different scenarios of the ways that we're wrestling through our faith. Um, some of you are skeptical and you're wanting things to be true about Jesus, but you're not really sure they are true. And your friends are telling you, let's go to church and we'll talk about Jesus. And so some of you might not yet believe in Christ and you're here today. And I think this is a great place for you to begin to say, okay, is this really true? Did Jesus die for the forgiveness of our sins as the scriptures have been teaching us? And then for the rest of us that are Christians, this really needs to be an encouragement because the number one calling in a Christian's life is to talk about Jesus. I, I, just, I, want, I want that to set in just for a moment. When you and I confess our belief in Jesus, when we come to the Lord's table to remember the body broken and the blood spilled out, it's not just so that we can be secure that we're going to heaven when we die. Right? Even though that is true, the reason why we come to this table is because we need to be reminded that God wants to use us now. And part of what the New Testament referred to it as is a good news. So you can't have good news and not talk about it. You can't be sitting at home with your family and something be really good news and you be like, okay, I'm glad I know that. We have to get to the point where we understand what the divine presence of God in our life and what the forgiveness of sins in our life looks like 
because when, when we get to the book of Acts right after Easter, we're going to go right in out of this Easter series looking at a bunch of the Old Testament, and then we're going to get right into the book of Acts because if we do this right, like if we as teachers teach this clearly and you grasp it, then we will know what the early church knew that was the foundation for what happened in the book of Acts. All right, I, w- I want you to be able to put two and two together. They had an awareness Like when Jesus was walking on the Emmaus Road and he was talking to the gentleman after his resurrection and he said to them in Luke 24, 27 and beginning, well, actually he doesn't, he didn't say this and this is the summary of what his conversation was and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, we have a graphic to show you this, Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And so on this road that Jesus was on with these two men, He went all the way back to Moses, which is a reference to the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which is the books of Torah, which were the most holy books to the people of Israel. And he started there and walked them through that and then walked them through all the prophets, which Daniel was one of them. The Daniel 9 passage is referenced by Jesus on multiple occasions. And so we're finding that if you and I can understand this, we're going to understand what the arrow after the cross really meant. And in the book of Acts, it said that they didn't have any needs. They were growing by thousands of people a day. People were getting immersed in baptism. There was powerful movement of the Holy Spirit because their lives were totally changed because of everything that they believed was coming true in Jesus that had already been talked about. And so somehow thousands of people were like, wow, this is it. And they changed their lives. And so hopefully we can help remember all of that. And so when Paul was talking to the church in Corinth as a reflection of last week, he said to them in chapter 15 of the first letter to the Corinthians in verse 3, Paul saying, for what I received, I've now passed on to you as first importance, that Christ died for our forgiveness of our sins, according to the scriptures. And so as a part of this series, we want to go back and say, what was that forgiveness of sins? What does it mean according to the scriptures? And so I'm going to give us a bunch of Old Testament today. Sounds so exciting, right? Like, whoa! Yeah, saddle up. This is going to be so entertaining, right? But no, this is. I'm going to. I'm going to push us to a point where we're like, okay, no more Old Testament. Then I'm going to stop. I think I know when I'm going to get to that place. But if I don't get there quick enough, just somebody raise their hand and say, "Enough, tap out. I'm done." Right? All right. So let me just help us understand this. So building off the Old Testament from last week. When you begin to look at everything that happened in like Isaiah 40 through 55 and begin to understand all of these things that we now know to be about Jesus, but they didn't know that to be about Jesus, you see a rhythm in the Old Testament of lots of little exiles and big exiles. Little exiles were like Jacob running away from his brother, right? Um, Big exiles, the children of Israel, slaves in Egypt, over 400 years. And then you have other little exiles of when... Kings and kingdoms were divided and underneath the kingly rules of, of um, David and Saul and his children and all these different things. And then you begin to see Syrian and Babylonian and Assyrian and all these different types of exiles. And then the longest one, obviously, was one even leading up to Christ, where there was another nearly 500 year exile period. And so there's these massive rhythms all throughout the Old Testament 
of exile, exile, forgiveness, restoration, exile, exile, forgiveness, restoration, and people being set free and learning. And there's so much of that. But then there's so much language in, in ceremonies around the forgiveness of sins. We're going to talk more about that more in the coming weeks. But it was all about the truth that the children of Israel had an identity. They were given a purpose. And that purpose was that they were supposed to be a display to all the nations of the one true God. And not only were they supposed to be a display, that they were supposed to be open to that because when they lived the way they were supposed to live, the, the nations of the world were going to be drawn to them. There's even language in Zechariah of an image of them, like 10 people grabbing onto the edges of their garments and saying, take us to your God. And they were all Gentiles, the people that were non-Jewish people. And so in the Old Testament, their purpose was to be the family of God and to be a picture of that family's openness to other people. But somehow along the way, they missed the mark on all of that. And so there's this rhythm of sin and forgiveness. And so I believe the early church was able to connect the dots on all these Old Testament stories and promises and hopes and begin to make sense of what really happened when Jesus died and when he rose again. I believe that we today, as we explore this idea of forgiveness of sins and this idea of the presence of the divine God, that hopefully there will be a little bit more that we can understand. So let me, let me jump in with this. Let me start with the presence of God in the Old Testament. I don't know if you've ever really thought about this, but there were several places in the Old Testament where God had a special presence. Did any of you know when the first special presence of God is found in scriptures? In Genesis, what time of day was he in a very special present moment with the people? At, it was the cool breeze of the evening, right? He would come and would walk with them. And so this is what I kind of imagine is almost similar. No, go with me. I'm very simplistic. I don't want to demean this. But imagine Jesus coming in and walking with Adam and Eve and then all the animals just lining up. And just walking around like, wow, this is awesome. Like a zoo with no cages and all the animals are loving and gentle, right? They were just all walking around together. And God was spending time with Adam and Eve and was talking to them, I believe, a lot about how they represented the image of God and how he wanted them to continue to manage. I almost view it as at the end of the day, God's like, so what would you do today? Tell me about your day. How did you take care of this place? What were you doing? What were your interactions? How did you walk through all of those processes today and, and spend time with me? And then much later on in this particular story, we find God finding Noah and his family during an era where the people were so rebellious, so that they were so wicked, they were building a tower to get to God up in heaven. And next thing you know, God had to set Noah and his family aside in a special present way. And so there were moments where God spoke to Noah and then would be absent for years. But he had a present encounter with him and he started building a boat and then he went into the ark and God shut the door. The presence of God shut the door for him. And next thing you know, the family is preserved. They begin to walk in renewal. And then when you begin to look at further into it, then Abraham has these incredible encounters with the presence of God. And then he goes on an epic journey of, of starting and relocating his family by faith because of the presence of God that was with them. Jacob, when he was running away, he actually has this incredible moment in, the, in this night, in this dream where the presence of God and him were interacting around a ladder. And then he has another time where he's wrestling with God 
And in that place, he actually refers to it as Bethel, which is the house of God. So he renamed the place where he had this encounter and it became a memorial to the Jewish people of every time they would walk around it. Oh, this is Bethel. This is where the presence of God was. They were always trying to find a way to put God in a in a box, so to speak. Right. It was a building, a house, and it became it was a tabernacle. It was a temple. And they wanted these places where the presence of God was. And so Abraham had multiple encounters from Exodus 3 and 6. And then you go into Moses in Exodus 20, where he introduces himself as I am who I am, right? And this powerful name of God, like he's, his presence is there and he's introducing himself because God has always wanted to be with his people. He's always wanted to. And so I'm saying all of this because I want us to realize that when you and I sit back and we're not taken back, like, whoa, like, that's amazing. That's awe-inspiring. I don't think our brain is truly processing what it means for God to inhabit us. And that we are His temple. We are His holy place now. And another place in the Scriptures where the special presence of God was, wasn't just in the tabernacle, and it wasn't just in the temple, but there was a special ark that they had, this Ark of the Covenant. And on the Ark of the Covenant were these beautifully fashioned angels, these cherubim, so to speak, that had these angels, angels wings pointing towards one another. And it wasn't just the Ark, but it was on top of the Ark at the presence of these angels where the presence of God really resided. So it, a lot of times they view it as a tabernacle. They would view it as the, um, the, the Holy of Holies. But the actual place where the presence of God was was at the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant then became one of these sacred places. It was almost like the security safe for the nation of Israel. Because inside the Ark were stored what? Important documents. I mean, it was like, the, like you keep the deed of your house or insurance papers or whatever in a special locked box in your house. That way, if something really bad happens, it's hard for people to walk out with it if they're trying to steal it. Or if your house catches on fire, it can withstand the heat because there's certain things that some of us, we don't want to get consumed, right? So we lock it away. Realizing that the nation of Israel and the Ark of the Covenant, the safest place they could put their important stuff, they put their important stuff. So you have the, the, the commandments given to them by God, which is like, this is the covenant agreement between me and you. That's important. We're going to put that in there. Right. And then we find that King David actually stored the Ark of the Covenant in Shiloh um, until the Philistines came and captured it. And there's this incredible story in and around the presence of God in this Ark and how in, in the land of Philistines, these statues that were standing up fell down and every day the Philistine is born. You just don't know where to read, right? There's some really exciting stuff going on here, but the presence of God was so powerful in this one place that even the false gods were constantly being fa falling over. And so they literally hitch it to a cart and let the, a cow take it back. And it makes it most of the way back to Jerusalem um, before they have to store it in a man's house, which if you go back and even just read about the family that had the chance to have it in their living room, it's amazing how blessed their family was. The presence of God was with them. And so David wanted to build a house for God. He wanted that ark to have a hooked up place. And when you begin to read this, there's a powerful moment where David was dreaming about this house for God, where God basically said to David, no, you're going to collect the materials, but you're not going to build it. Um, I'm going to let your son build it, but yet I am going to do something different for you. 
And this is what I believe that the early church put two and two together on. And I think it's really important for us to let that renew our minds in regards to what we begin to understand about why we have a purpose until Jesus comes back. We are forgiven of our sins. We do get to spend eternity with God forever in heaven. Yet, the gospel includes a earthly now message to it. There's some things that we need to be doing. And so Nathan is talking in response to David's proposal to build God a house. And God says something back. And this is what I think that the early church put together. In Second Samuel seven eleven through 14, if you're taking notes, I encourage you to go back and read this. Nathan says to them, Yahweh, God, declares to you that Yahweh will build you a house. So listen, I just want you to get this. I think there's a play on words going on here. This is a God, I don't want to say like getting poetic um, back with David, but David wanted to build God a literal house. But God was saying house, but this house is, is not a house. It was a home, right? And not just a home, but when you say home, what am I getting at? Family. Right? I, I, I want you to get to the point where you understand this. He's not saying to David, I'm going to now build you a big palace that I want your family to live in. Listen to how he goes on. Like, no, I'm going to build you a house, so to speak. When your days are filled and you lie down with your ancestors. Now, what does that mean? He dies, right? This is a very nice way of saying when you're dead, um, I will raise up your seed after you who shall come forth from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Now listen, I think this is really important. God was not interested in any house. He wanted a family. God doesn't want buildings. He wants a body. God isn't looking for us to have the coolest locations um, that we can be in or to be gifted old church buildings and then restore them to historic value. God has been... Since the beginning, walking in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve, meeting Noah, meeting Abraham, meeting all these characters throughout the Old Testament, he's been painting a picture of a plan where he has been looking to establish his family and his presence in that family. And he's talking about doing it in a special way to David by saying, no, one of your offspring is going to actually be God himself. So it's not just going to be a house. I'm going to put my presence with you and you will have that presence. And he goes on to say, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. That's why I believe that Luke and Matthew, when they were recording the Lord's Prayer, started out by saying, our father who's in heaven, how would be your name? Because... The imagery of the Old Testament and the prophecies being fulfilled about a God that we can't wrap our minds around. Like, it is impossible to explain Him in a way that is really doing it justice. We can use words like creator. We can use words like protector. We can use words like all-loving, all-knowing, all-powerful. But at the end of the day, because we are westernly educated, it is nothing but information. But at some level, when we begin to see what God has been doing 
in his plan from the beginning, from Moses through the prophets to the cross to an empty tomb. And we see God has been intentional the whole time. Maybe we might get a chance for it to go from our head to our heart where we are now moved like Paul was when he was writing letters to the early church and saying to them, I am in tears over you because I want you to understand this. He was weeping over people because this was so important. And I would love for our church to get to the place where I don't care which continent you've come to Baltimore from, what your type of cultural background or understanding or the type of emotional pain that your family may have caused you growing up. But at the end of the day that we realize in Jesus Christ, we've received a lavish love gift and therefore we can't control the tears just thinking about it. Because that is what happens when we allow ourselves to be taught by the Spirit of connecting all the dots of everything that's going through the Old Testament. The building that Solomon built to house the presence of God is only mentioned one time in the Scriptures about the presence of God ever really being there, and that was the day it was dedicated. There are other things that we can allude to about that story, but there's nowhere else in the Old Testament where you'll find that there's a, a background story about God's presence in that temple. Um, and I don't think that that's necessarily unintentional. I really do feel like that it wasn't long after that that the children of Israel forgot about who their God was and what he was wanting them to be as their purpose and their identity. And it started the spin cycle again of idolatry. And therefore, they stopped fulfilling their purpose of reflecting God's image because they weren't interested in that God anymore. And that happens many times when we get comfortable. When we are walking in good days, it's so easy for us to want to become our own God. But it's when the hard days, we're like, hey, God, could you step in now and make this easy for me again? And then he does it. And then we step back like, yeah, okay, I got it now, God. But that is not a thankful spirit of awareness of how much he's ever done for us. And so when Paul is telling the Corinthians who are having some really good days, I am telling you everything about God's love that's now been fulfilled through the scriptures. I believe he truly wanted to motivate them and help them to understand this powerful presence of God. So you can read about the temple in 1 Kings 8. You can read about um, the story of things that were dedicated in the wilderness in Exodus 40. You can read about this passionate glory of God that he wanted to fill the whole earth in Psalm 72. You can even go on into Isaiah 6 and realize that the angels in the divine presence of God were filling the whole earth with their praise and their glory of God. If that's happening, then why are we not motivated by the truth that Jesus died and that he rose again and somehow has just become information? And there's so many other things in the Old Testament, but for the sake of time, I can see in some of your faces, we need to move out of the Old Testament. So let me, let me move out of the Old Testament and go to first John, or John, Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14. In Gospel of John 1, 14, I actually have it on a slide for you. The Word became flesh and lived among us. We gazed upon His glory, glory like that of, of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. This Word lived 
that he lived amongst us is the same word, and I can't pronounce it. Um, It's a Greek word, E-S-K-E-N-O-S-E-N. It means tabernacled, that he tabernacled with us. And what did the tabernacle do in the Old Testament? It actually was a mobile building. So it was the housed building of God that actually moved around and went everywhere from Bethlehem all the way to Jerusalem and a bunch of places in between. And I think John is saying that Jesus was the new tabernacle. He was the new temple. He was the divine glory that was talked about in the Old Testament. The word had actually, from Genesis chapter 1, became present in flesh. And so the early church believed that to be true. And it radically changed the way they viewed their resources, their time, and the way they viewed other people because this, this started a massive movement of Gentile inclusion. This started a massive movement where it wasn't just for the Jews anymore. It was for Jews and Gentiles. And Gentiles actually encompassed every people group outside of the Jewish nation. And so Greeks and the, um, the people from the West, the uh, even early ancient Chinese civilizations, and all these other places were now being included because Jewish people were now walking up saying, no, it's not just for us, it's for you. And when a Jewish person didn't believe that, Paul showed up and he would chastise them. And he was like, no, this is for everybody. And by the way, it's all equal at the table and we should serve one another. There's no more slave and master. There's no more Jew and Gentile. There's no more division between men and women. There's no more of these things is what he's saying to them because of the grace of God that is pictured in us understanding what God was doing throughout all of the Old Testament. We actually used Jeremiah 31 during our Advent time. And it says in Jeremiah 31, For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. The early church was overcome with joy because they knew that on the cross in Jesus Christ, their sins were forgotten. But the problem, and we talked about this last week, and I'm probably going to say it a few more times, isn't just that we have a forgetting problem. We have a forgetting problem that we're sinners. We forget that we actually cost Jesus' life. We many times don't believe that we're that sinful. And so because of that, we don't have a very big God because he didn't have to forgive me much. Right. And so because of that, we now have a church that can get not just the gallery. I'm talking about capital C church, especially in this western side of the globe where we can gather and we can have a holy posture and we can have moments in church. But yet we still have the same sin struggles that everybody else faces. We still have the same conflict ratio between men and women. We still have the same um, conflict ratio between people groups and ethnicities and economic classes that the world does inside the church because we're not walking in this powerful awareness that we once were sinners and we're now not. We went from being sinful to being holy, but yet we want to be forgiven, but we don't want to act holy We want to wait for the holiness to be heaven. And in between, between if Jesus comes back, we want to just keep doing whatever we want to do. And that's idolatry. Because either God is God or he's not. And so what Paul is saying to the church by saying Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, is he's making a case for everyone. And even Jesus on the Emmaus Road, going back from Moses and the prophets, talking about exile, talking about forgiveness of sins, talking about all the gaps. And then how it all was done in Jesus. We now are a forgiven people. There's, not need, there's no more need for an animal to be sacrificed. And all our vegetarians said amen, right? 
There's no more need for that because of Christ. Our sins are forgiven. So why would we let God's grace have to be renewed every day? Because we keep our patterns of sin. It's like we want to be forgiven, but yet we also want to continue to serve our own selves. And that's why Paul, on many occasions, said to them, don't serve the lusts of your flesh. And a lot of times we only view that as sexual, and we definitely have some sexual problems in our lives, but that also is lots of other lusts of the flesh. Anything that we put as an idol in our life above God. The problem is, is that many times the idol in our life is the one thing we normally don't talk about. Or it's the one thing we do in private that we don't want to talk about. And we've got to be really careful about how we live in this period of just this incredible, lavish love of God that we refer to as grace. So, Daniel, let me go back there for a minute. I think I've got enough New Testament for a moment. Let me go back to the Old Testament because Daniel chapter 9 is a powerful prayer of forgiveness. But there's a foundation that's already been laid because Jesus and the early church spoke a lot about Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, and Daniel chapter 9. I think it's really important that you mark those chapters and you look at them because when Jesus died and he rose again, they took the truth about what Daniel was prophesying and they believed it was fulfilled. I just want you to understand this. They had been hoping for a long time. And I hope that in some level, I use the word hope in probably an abusive way there in that sentence, but it's my desire is that you and I can maybe step into it just for a moment to realize what they had been hoping for. They had been hoping to be freed from exile. They had been hoping to be freed from oppression and regimes that were seeking to destroy them. They were hoping for their sins to be forgiven so that the presence of God would dwell with them again. They had been hoping through Isaiah, hoping through Daniel, hoping through Jeremiah, hoping through hundreds of years of silence that the presence of God would be with them to finally turn the kingdoms of this world over and be the true Lord. And this is what is beginning to be talked about. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel interrupts King Nebuchadnezzar, it interprets King Nebuchadnezzar's dream about a statue composed of different metals and is smashed by a piece of a huge stone. The statue is a symbol for a succession of the world empires. Like if we had time to go through it all, and I wanted to lengthen our teaching, we could talk about the different metals that made up this statue that was smashed by this stone. But the prophecy was is that the stone was representing the coming messianic, the true kingly leader of Israel, was going to destroy all of these oppressive empires and set up a kingdom that was God's on earth for everybody. That was Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 7, there's another vision along the same lines about monsters in which one, like the Son of Man, which Jesus talks about himself even in this passage in the Gospels, one like the Son of Man is exalted and set beside the Ancient of Days, which was Israel's way of describing Yahweh, the, the one true God, that this messianic figure was going to be seated by his right hand next to the Ancient of Days and that all these monsters were finally going to be destroyed. 
right? There's a prophecies around that in Daniel 7. And then in Daniel 9, Daniel is given a vision about an extended period of exile, 70 weeks upon 70 weeks of years. So it's really like this massive 500-year time. That's, but at the end of it, sin was going to be dealt with once and for all. Now, Albert's going to be teaching next week. And I just said, man, Albert, I gave you a really hard chapter. <laughs> um, I was reading through what you're going to be taught next week. And so much of it is built out of that exile period. And so when you do that, you've also got to look at writings in Jewish history that come out of that exile period that aren't in our Bible. Um, there's this whole section of book called the Maccabees, right? There's this incredible stories that were written. And when you look at that, you begin to see people that were longing for this lengthy exile that Daniel prophesied in Daniel 9 to end. They were desiring for the oppression to stop, the death to stop, the, the lack of, uh, of the forgiveness of sins to be actually atoned for. Like they wanted not just for them to stop saying, they wanted as a group to begin to stop saying. And so in Daniel 9, he's talking about the restoration that was going to come. And I believe that in Christ, all of the powers of evil, all of the things that are binding us up were completed in Jesus Christ. And so let me now read for you as a closing a passage of Scripture we talked about during prayer week. Because I want you to begin to hear how Paul took everything I just walked through the Old Testament with you through and how he begins to help the early church understand all these concepts about who they are and what God has done and now the exile is over, forgiveness has come. Listen to this, Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. As for you, you were dead in transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air and the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that we've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms with Christ. Now, let me just stop here just for a moment. According to the prophecies of the Old Testament, where was Jesus seated? According to His words, even in the New Testament, when He was telling the disciples, I'm going, I'm going to go take a seat next to my Father. And now, where are we seated? We are at Dad's table. We are seated next to Christ. I mean, that is the reality of the joy of the Spirit that should be inside of us. Is that we're not waiting for that to be true someday down the road. That is a true fact for us now. And it goes on to say, um, uh, in order that in the coming ages we might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Now let me read this last verse for you. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith and not, this is not from yourselves, it is a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast for we are God's handiwork. Listen, we are God's created for a purpose. 
created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We as a church must understand what Christ dying has done for us so that the true image-bearing calling in our life can be completed. We are meant, I am meant in my home to bear the image of Christ to my wife and to my kids. If I look a lot like Jesus, there's going to be a lot more peace in my home because Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. Jesus is the ultimate one that restores things. And so if your kids fear you as a parent, then there's a Jesus issue, an image issue. If there is a situation where you have a broken relationship with somebody else, it is the image of God issue in us. If there are people you hate, there's an image of God issue in us. If there are people that you think are less than you, there's an image of God issue in us. That according to the scriptures, that, ha- that was settled on the cross. Jesus died to forgive us of that so that we could walk in our full identity until Jesus comes back to be the ruler of us, to be the true king, to be the one that, has, that, that every other knee is going to bow to. The world's not to bow to us. The world's to bow to him. But they're supposed to see him through us. And that's what we're here for. And that's what God wants us to be a part of. And so if there is not a spirit of joy in your soul, even in the midst of the trials and the frustrations that you're facing, it is very likely that we have a perception issue. There is something that we're seeing that we're not that is not correct. Because just because we have faith in Jesus doesn't mean that we're not going to suffer. We're going to be talking in the coming weeks about suffering. And because we are getting the opportunity to look like Jesus. The problem is, is none of us in here get excited about that. We don't want to. We want it all to be good. We want a life of luxury, right? We want it to be all about our worship. We aren't looking for us to find the broken places of this world and work as Christ's body to bring renewal and restoration and to bring hope, to bring peace, to bring love into those environments. And that's what we're commissioned to do. And so I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to break up our comfort. Like, I I want us to be safe and I want us to have a sense of security and I want us. But at the end of the day, there might be somebody that lives on the block where you live that might need you to lay your life down for them. So that they can believe in God's great love for them, because we have good news. We're taken care of. Death has no more sting, right? We are promised a resurrection. We don't use the word resurrection at funerals very often anymore. But the person in the box, if they believe in Christ, are not, they're not going to, they're not dead. They're going to be alive, right? But the problem is, is that we're so earthly focused, so present focused, that the the truth about God, the truth about his faith and the truth about his love, we quickly forget. And we're letting this world dampen the power of the church because we're not walking in the power of the Spirit that brings the revelation, that brings the wisdom, and ultimately brings the hope and the healing that we're looking for. Because we have got our eyes focused on the wrong things. And so hopefully we can, we can build on the foundation of the Old Testament so that we get the full joy of Acts and why so many people were willing to walk away from the things that they had been doing 
because they wanted to honor God with their life until Jesus came back, knowing that many of them were going to lose their life in the process. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity for us to share this time together today. Um, Father, you're a good, good dad. We sing that song a lot. You even promised and even sowed the seed of being a dad when you talked to David and through Nathan. And Father, you also did so many other things in the scriptures that we need to have illuminated so that we realize that you are working your plan. And we're included in it. We get to participate in the, the, the divine one, the holy one, the one true God's plan for the redeeming of the world. Father, we get to join you in that. We've received an invitation. And Father, you have forgiven us our sins. And so, Father, may we not take that for granted. May we not abuse that. Father, we want the power of the Spirit to be in us. And so, Father, I pray for those today who are here that are skeptical. And I ask that your Spirit would help them see the truth in Jesus. And Father, for those of us that are starting to be led astray in our minds and we're starting to have so many doubts about Jesus and about the church, Lord, I pray that you would do something here that would be healing and restorative in our soul. Because, Father, we want to be the body that you want to reside in. Father, we want to be a manifestation of your presence. We want to bear the image of the one true God. Father, we want to look like Christ. And so, Lord, would you help us to be able to do that this week? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.